today we're beginning a new series uh, called How God Shapes a Person for Impact. Often we have a, a sense that our heroes are born ready-made. And we ignore often the process that God will take a person through to, uh, to prepare them to have influence and to shape them for the life that they'll lead. This series looks at Moses before he ever faced a showdown with Pharaoh, uh, before he ever unleashed uh, through God's hand the, uh, the plagues and the, uh, the means by which God would deliver uh, the nation of Israel from Egypt. It looks at the circumstances that helped him to become uh, the man that we often know him as. Uh, today's passage uh, is looking at the backstory to Moses' backstory. Uh, it's uh, helping us to see how to cope when the rules change. And we live in a world where the rules have changed and the rules are changing. Uh, as an example of that, in, uh, up until 2008, uh, for almost 300 years in England, they had blasphemy laws on the books. It was not only illegal but punishable uh, the, at the most uh, high, severe uh, sentence, it was punishable by death to uh, defame or to uh, speak in ridicule against the Holy Scriptures. Um, when that, that law was formally abolished in 2008, although it hadn't been uh, uh, used for a number of decades pre previous to that, but in 2009, the British government funded an exhibition, and one of the uh, one of the exhibits in that exhibition was uh, it, it had a, a Bible open with a basket of pens beside it, and there was a note above it that said, "If you if you feel you've been excluded from the Bible, write your way back into it." And so they encouraged people to uh, defame the 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 Bible and to write. Uh, write themselves back into it. Not surprisingly, what followed was uh, people took out their pens and wrote uh, angry, lewd, and obscene uh, uh, comments into uh, the Bible itself and gave uh, a, a, an illustration for us of just how quickly rules can change and how uh, society can change in its attitudes and uh, its behaviors. The question we need to deal with, I think, is what do we do when we feel those rules changing? What's our response? How should we think about uh, a world where the rules change? How do we respond when we find ourselves in that situation where uh, we're, we're trying to cope with a world where, hey, it's not the same world that we were uh, living in just a little while ago. And today's passage gives us, I believe, uh, some, the beginnings of some answers to those kinds of questions because it is very much uh, a setting where the rules have changed and the people of God are having to, uh, have, having to respond and to uh, react to all that they see. So if you, if you would, I'd ask you to turn me to Exodus chapter 1. Uh, that's on page 42 in the Black uh, Church Bibles in the seat in front of you. And I'm going to be uh, reading today's passage in three sections. We're going to cover the entire chapter, uh, but I'm going to start with just verses 1 to 7. So Exodus uh, 1, 1 to 7, page 42. 
These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. This is the word of God. Now we call this the book of Exodus, but it's probably better to consider this as a, the second volume in a multi-volume work or uh, the second season of your favorite Netflix series. It is a continuation. And we know that because in Hebrew, the very first word in the book of Exodus is and. Uh, it, it, is, it is very deliberately a continuation of what came before. And uh, it's important that we, we read it with that in mind because uh, uh, we, we miss many things in the passage if we don't. So for some, as, as a refresher, the book of Genesis, if you recall, is a book that talks a lot about babies and childbirth and uh, some of the challenges and difficulties and the promises and uh, the hopes in that regard. And so right at the beginning, for instance, Adam and Eve, they are commanded to be fruitful and multiply. And uh, you have that, uh, that command, that mandate that God gives to humanity. Then when he starts over with a man named Abraham and his wife, Sarah, he, uh, he gives them a great promise that he will make them into a great nation and their descendants will be as many as uh, the, the sand on the seashore or the, or the, skies in the, in the, uh, the uh, stars in the sky. And yet, Abraham and Sarah only have one child. And that child only has two children. And so these promises... Uh, seem like a pipe dream, and this command of God that he's given to humanity seems in jeopardy. And so that's how you, uh, we, we have that kind of progression through the book of Genesis. By the time you get to the end of Genesis it, that uh, referenced here, there were 70, uh, this, this little family has grown to a, uh, a clan of some 70 descendants of Jacob now, and they are uh, entering into Egypt. Uh, so uh, here we in uh, with that 70 has now been blessed. And in verse 7, we get a picture of how uh, God has blessed them. Uh, take a look at the description. How we, we've, we've often said that in, in scripture, it's not just what is said, it's how that is said that gives you an impression of what you're supposed to take away from it. So listen to verse 7. The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now, any one of those descriptions would have gotten the point across but by going one and two and three and four. We get the impression God has done something remarkable and he is fulfilling his promises. These people are multiplying. Uh, this little group, this tiny family has expanded in incredible ways. Now, settling in Egypt at first would have been difficult. Any of you who have moved to another country know that it is hard when you first move there. There's, uh, there's culture to learn. There are different practices and customs. There's a new language to learn. It would have been very difficult for those 70 people when they first uh, arrived in Egypt 
to figure everything out. But how are they feeling by verse 7? Pretty amazing, right? Like a lot of time has taken place, they've figured it, everything out, and now they are strong, they are prosperous, they have expanded, there are Israelites everywhere. And so they are feeling at home and they are feeling very comfortable in Egypt. It feels like where they were always destined to be. And that feels exciting, except it's not so exciting if we have read the prequel, uh, the first installment in this multi-volume work, Genesis, because there we learn the, the people of Israel were not destined to spend their lives in Egypt. They are destined for another land. God has created them and called them and given them the promised land. And so we're, we're, we're reading this and thinking, boy, it's been an awful long time. They seem awfully comfortable in this new place. They're not really supposed to be living here forever, though. What are they still doing in Egypt? Why aren't they heading to the promised land? The comfort and ease of Egypt were threatening to derail their calling. They were becoming so comfortable in this land that they, they thought, well, God has blessed us in this one way. We're multiplying. Maybe we don't need to bother with that promised land. Maybe Canaan would just be, maybe it would just be better that we not, not bother with that. And so the threat of of their comfort was real and it was threatening to send them off course and off mission uh, to depart from their calling and their promises. And the same thing happens to us every time we face comfortable. When we find ourselves in a position where we're kind of feeling like things are good and, and our needs are met and it's not hard, it's easy to become comfortable in that situation and when we do, we can develop an amnesia. We might not forget God altogether, although that does happen, but often we'll forget what it is that he's called us to do. We can dial back our obedience and we're our understanding of what it is that he's calling us to. And that's a danger in every generation, and it's important that we remember that because you and I, just by osmosis of the culture around us and our own natural tendencies, our uh, our natural assumption is comfortable equals good, uncomfortable equals bad. And yet that's seldom the case. God warns us actually of the opposite. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses, uh, I'll just pick out a little bit of verses 13 and 14, but he goes on for a number of verses des describing this, this fear. He says, when your silver and gold is multiplied, you forget the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And you have experienced this. I know you have. <laughs> I have experienced this. When, when times are tough, when you find yourself in this difficult situation, you're calling out to God, you're praying earnestly, you're reading your Bible, you're, you're clinging to him desperately. And then God answers your prayers and things go good. And you're like, oh, I guess it wasn't so bad after all. I guess I could handle it. And, and we take credit for God's, God's deliverance and we forget him as soon as the difficulty passes. And so uh, something very similar was happening in the nation of Israel and you know something very similar happens, the same similar dynamic happens in your life. 
Uh, listen to how uh, the, uh, Jonathan Sachs, he's a former chief rabbi of Great Britain, how he describes this, pro this process or this temptation or tendency. He says, when it was hard to be a Jew, people stayed Jewish. But when it was easy to be a Jew, people stopped being Jewish. He said, globally, this is the major Jewish problem of our time. Do you think that's only the major problem of the Jewish people at, at this time? Do you think that that same thing happens in your own life? Do you think that there is a tendency when things are good, when you're feeling comfortable, that you kind of dial back your sense of dependence on God? Do you feel that, that, that sense in which you can feel like, oh, I don't think I, I need him, I'm, I'm pretty good, and you start looking to the world's promises instead of his promises? And you start looking to the world's values and the world's priorities instead of God's. And, and so why, why this is uh, important for our passage today and important for us to understand when the rules change, how to, how to cope, how to, how to regulate our lives, is that when the rules change, we need to remember that the good life has hidden dangers. That comfort doesn't necessarily equal good. Comfort can create complacency. When we get what we want, we forget who gave it to us. And so that's, that's kind of our first principle from this passage as we are trying to navigate life in, uh, in this time, in this era when the rules change, we need to remember that uh, the good life has hidden dangers. But the next, the next section shows us that the hard life has hidden blessings and uh, we are just as easily, uh, just as easily forget that and, and discount as we go through our lives. God sometimes does his best work when our worst fears come true. The hard life has hidden blessings. Uh, watch what happens in verses 8 to 14. He says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let's deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service, in mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Now we said, the Israelites were on top of the world. Life was good. Life was comfortable. They were strong, prosperous, and at ease. And they'd gone to Joseph, they'd gone to Egypt with their brother Joseph, and that was at a time when Joseph was a hero. He was celebrated, and so they were literally given the royal treatment. They were a special and protected people. But with a new king, all of that changed. In verse 8, it says that the new king did not know Joseph. Now, that could mean he just didn't know anything about him. Uh, time has passed. 
there have been, you know, there, there has been a lot of, uh, these are hundreds of years are in, in between, so maybe he had just never heard of him. But more likely what has taken place is that he chose to discount Joseph's contribution. It's like saying he was a nobody to him. And so all of the, all of the special privileges, all of the, the uh, special opportunities that were afforded to the Israelites are gone. And he decides that he wants to uh, uh, treat them as a threat. So the new king has new ideas. And he, you can see in this speech, he is stirring up anti-foreigner sentiment against the Israelites. He, he is uh, going out of his way to spread uh, lies and uh, propaganda in order to uh, have the general population see the Jews as, uh, as a threat to them as a nation. Now, sheep farmers aren't typically very intimidating. And... That's, that was what the Israelites were doing at that time. They were sheep farmers in Goshen, and that wouldn't normally cause a, a powerful nation like Egypt or uh, its people to, to feel intimidated by them. And so the king uh, gives a number of, throws out a number of things as propaganda to change that. Uh, in, in verse 9, he, he describes them as a, as, as a threat. He says, if, essentially, if we're not careful, we're in danger of being replaced. They're too mighty for us. There's too many of them, which was almost certainly not the case. Then, despite the fact that they've shown him only loyalty and shown the nation of Egypt only loyalty, he says, hey, if war breaks out, they're going to join over to the other side and they'll overtake us and we will be overrun in our own country. And so he stirs up anti-foreigner sentiment. He creates a, a hatred and a dread of uh, the Jewish people. And his goal is to, to, to make them decrease in, in population, uh, to decrease their influence. And so his strategy is to make them slaves. Now, as soon as he does, makes that decree that, that announces from now on that the Jewish people in, in the nation of Egypt will be uh, assigned to the, the slave caste, their, their status and their influence as a people would drop right away. So now, uh, uh, um, right away, they, they have lost their influence and they've lost their, uh, their natural power. Then he sets them to work. And as slaves, they would be worked ruthlessly with long hours, and uh, they would be put to work with cruel and harsh conditions. Uh, it mentions two cities, uh, Pithom and Ramses. So they were responsible for literally building these cities from scratch, uh, and they would be fortress cities on the uh, border of Egypt that they would build up and be, uh, have to establish them incredibly hard work, but also work that would take them away from their families where they would be separated them from them from large periods of time. And so with each one of these measures, poverty, low, low status and influence, hard work that would in some time in shorten your lifespan and being set apart from your, your family to a different uh, region of Egypt, you would have very little opportunity to make babies. 
and with very little money to support them, maybe you have fewer of them. It seems like an ironclad strategy to reduce the influence of the Israelites in Egypt and to reduce them as a, a threat to a paranoid king. Only the ironclad plan doesn't work. Verse 12 says, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. Now, naturally speaking, this is an impossible result. This, this, this just wouldn't have happened uh, aside from a supernatural in intervention of God. But it's showing us that a hostile world can't frustrate God's plans. If, if a government sets itself up against God and his purposes, the government will face a, uh, an impassable wall. Now, the Egyptians see all of this. They recognize, wait a second, we, we saw the expansion of, of, of this people, but Pharaoh put in all of these new measures. There's no way that they were going to continue to expand, and yet they are. And the Egyptians recognize there is some supernatural force that is uh, at work here. We don't have any other explanation for it. And so the verse, uh, verse 12 again just says, and they were in dread of the people of Israel. Now put yourself in the shoes of the Israelites at this point. It's not like any of them are saying, boy, they're just, they're, they're killing us, like literally uh, killing us as slaves in, and under these terrible, harsh conditions, but at least we're able to have somehow supernaturally have lots of babies, so it's, it's okay. Now, they were not thinking that. They were thinking, this is painful, hard, cruel. Our lives are difficult. And yet, they couldn't help but recognize that somehow God's purposes were still being carried out. God's plan was still being enacted. And they couldn't help but see that there's something happening that we need to recognize. They knew that it wasn't their plan, but they still entrusted themselves to God's plan. They still recognized this is somehow still a part of what God is seeking to accomplish in our generation. We need to submit to it and to grow through it. And that, I would submit, is how God's people have always responded uh, to, uh, to the, the, turns, the harsh turns that come in their lives. Peter said, for instance, in 1 Peter 4, 19, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And, and so it's just that picture. Keep doing what's right. Keep, uh, keep seeking the Lord's will. Keep entrusting your life to him. Keep believing in God's good plan. Stay the course. And part of that plan is obviously God is at work to mature our character, to deepen our dependence on him, to do the things in our lives in the hard times that is far more difficult for him to do in our lives in the good times. Paul put it like this in Romans 5, 3, and 4. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. It's a recognition that God is at work even in painful, difficult, 
seemingly evil circumstances brought about by evil people, he is at work in those circumstances to accomplish his goodwill, his good purposes. In Israel's case, slavery was a, a, a terrible evil dreamed up by a wicked and paranoid ruler. And yet, clearly it was part of God's plan to mature his people. It, it was part of his plan to get them back on the road to the promised land. We know that in part because remember what happened when God actually did deliver the people of, uh, of Israel from Egypt? Remember when they were making their way to the promised land? Remember what happened every time something mildly inconvenient took place? What did they say? Oh, it was so good in Egypt. Why can't we go back there? That was just a constant temptation to them. Can you imagine what it would have been like for them? How difficult it would have been for any of them to leave if these harsh and cruel conditions hadn't been brought in. And often the same thing is true in our lives. Often in those times of comfort, we are unwilling to let go of things that get in the way of our relationship with God and his mission that, and the mission that he calls us to. Now, I don't know what's in store for the church in the coming days. I, I don't know what some of the fears that you have for your own personal life in the days to come. But I do know that there are hidden dangers in the good times. And I know that there are hidden blessings in the, in the hard times. I know that God uses those things. And so there are worse things than not getting what we want. And uh, it's not always God's plan to give us everything that we ask him for. And that's, that's a struggle for us to come to terms with. It's a struggle for us to deal with that. So now the question is, if we recognize this, if we begin to see the good times and the bad times differently than we typically see them, it's not always uh, comfort equals good and discomfort equals bad if we recognize that there are uh, hidden dangers in the good times and hidden blessings in the hard times, the question now is, what do we do? How do we navigate through them? What's our response? What is our guiding principle? And you might have thought, hey, this is Exodus. Moses is the one that's going to give us that, that, that message. He's going to be the one who teaches us how to do this. But what we instead learn that if it hadn't been for a number of courageous women, there wouldn't be any Moses. There wouldn't be any uh, righteous deliverer of God's people. And uh, we're going to see some of those courageous women next week. We're going to look at a, a couple of those courageous women this week. Two of them in particular show us that when the rules change, the fear of God is our power to overcome. Changing times and increased pressure test our faith and they test where our ultimate loyalty lies. And they, they test what are we really trusting in, who are we really fearing. So the fear of God is our power to overcome. Uh, follow along as I read the conclusion to our passage in verses 15 to 22. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. 
But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they're vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his peoples, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now Pharaoh is frustrated. He's frustrated that his plan just isn't working. And he's working the Israelites to death, but somehow their numbers just keep multiplying. He's sending them away to work on these cities, but still somehow they have uh, an ability to, uh, to, to multiply and make babies. And time has passed, and he's been able to, to see that this plan of his doesn't seem to be working, and uh, there are challenges that he has, to, uh, ha- he has to come to terms with. So he enlists two J- Jewish midwives to kill the baby boys that are born. Now, the fact that he only, we only have the names of two midwives may suggest they're, maybe they're overseer midwives, maybe they're kind of head of the administration of midwives, and they're, um, uh, you know, this is a rapidly multiplying uh, nation of people. Presumably, you would have more than two. Or the message is these midwives are being worked like slaves, just like the uh, the, the, the men who have been sent to, uh, to build these cities. But either way, you have these uh, two, two women that are, that are pointed out here. Now, he commands the midwives to kill the baby boys, but to let the girls live. Do you know why that is? Can you guess why Pharaoh would want the boys killed off? I think it's pretty likely that it's because he saw that they were going to grow up to be uh, warriors and, and soldiers and, and they could potentially uh, be a threat to him and he dismisses the threat of the women. Little baby girls grow up into women and they couldn't possibly do anything to me. And so what does God do to this uh, king who has dismissed uh, an entire gender and said, well, I don't think we need to worry about the women. He will, you see in these next two chapters, he, it will be actually through women that his commands are overturned, his plans are spoiled, and God's purposes prevail. And it, it's just one of those little uh, it's just one of those little hints that you get in there that are actually tied right through the Bible, uh, even through the Old Testament, showing us how God subverts the, uh, the, the often chauvinistic attitudes of the culture of the day. That God is confronting those wrong attitudes of, yeah, we don't need to worry about the women. And then he shows us just how powerful uh, they can really be. Now, midwives at this time were typically women who were unable to have children, went into the workforce to carry out this important role in childbearing. But as such, they were seen as uh, seen with shame and treated with very little respect. 
they were at the bottom rung of, uh, of society and they would be treated as such. So you have these two very, even if they were the head uh, midwives, which is a, a, a very real possibility, they're still at the very bottom rung of uh, the social order of the day and they have been called to, to answer uh, and called to, to account before the most powerful uh, man in the world at the time. A man who claimed to speak for God and to be a representative of the gods. And they're faced with the best ba basic question that becomes the basic question throughout the book of Exodus. Whom shall you fear? Who will capture your attention and get your loyalty and devotion? And it's the same question that we are asked. It's the same question that when the rules change, when we find ourselves in a time where culture is in flux and the stakes are raised, the same question is asked of us, whom shall you fear? And here the, 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 the midwives, they know that their calling is to bring life into the world, but they've, called, been, they've been instead commanded by the most powerful person they know to instead of bringing life into this world, to end life. Pharaoh demands obedience. But Shifra and Pua take their stand in verse 17. Watch what it says. It says, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. Notice, if you will, that the midwives didn't choose to take their stand when the Pharaoh made slaves of the men. Uh, they, didn't, they didn't protest that they were being overworked or underpaid. Like Jesus, they'll accept, they'll accept injustice, but they won't give in to disobedience. They're willing to turn the other cheek, but they're not willing to look the other way. And when the rules change, that's an important distinction that all of us need to make. We stand on the word of God, not on our opinions. We will maintain our obedience to God's revealed will, not to our comforts and preferences. As Proverbs 3, 7 says, Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Now, the stakes are high when we're forced to choose sides. When we are faced with a, a decision that, that, that challenges where our loyalties are. For these midwives to say, no, we're not going to do what Pharaoh says, would be obviously the threat of a career-limiting move, probably a life-ending one. But God had mercy on them. In verse 20, it says, God dealt well with the midwives. In fact, he dealt so well, he provides children for these, for these women who rescued children. He provides uh, uh, families for them because they rescued these babies from death. And it's a picture for us of God's care over uh, those uh, who are faithful to him. A picture of God's faithfulness to them. Notice also that he records their names, Shifra and Pua, Shifra and Pua. And he does so in a book where... Pharaoh never gets a name. Pharaoh is a title. It's like king. It means great house in Egyptian, but it, it just, it just uh, this powerful man, he's not even named. Scholars are still trying to figure out who he is. 
And it's almost as if to say, these two women who were at the bottom rung of society treated as if they were, they were unworthy and uh, not worthy of any kind of note or mention, they are remembered by God, they are precious by, to God. Their names will be recorded in scripture so that thousands of years later, God's people will still be remembering Shifra and Pua. Remember what they did. Remember how they lived. Remember how they put God first. And that, that Pharaoh, what was his name again? Doesn't matter. Those people who choose to reject God and his purposes are in God's eyes forgotten, not worth remembering ultimately unimportant. When the rules change, it makes us question whom we most fear. And so as we close, I want you to just give thought to what you might be fearing this morning. What fears are driving you as the rules change and we find ourselves uh, in a time of turmoil and upheaval and maybe you personally are finding, facing circumstances that are causing that in your life as well. Do you fear losing the good life? Because that may be the very means God's using you to remind you that Egypt isn't your home, to remind you that we are created for another place. It may be the means God is using to get you back on mission, to stir us of our complacency and help us to remember our need for dependence on him. Do you fear facing the hard life? Do you fear uh, facing the, the difficulties that would come? Remember, if, if, if that is you, remember that the character of God's people is always forged through suffering. That this is always God's plan to mature us. It's in our weakness that we can experience God's strength. And ultimately, the question of this passage is, do you fear God or do you fear Pharaoh? Where does your heart's loyalty lie? There can only be one Lord in our lives. And it's in these times when the rules change, when circumstances are shifting and the stakes are raised, that we are forced to consider who gets my ultimate loyalty? Who's in control? Who's in charge? Who will be Lord of my life? And this, this, this passage reminds us that there is grace, there is shelter, there is hope for those who put their faith in the one who is worthy of it, who fear the one who is worthy of all of our awe and wonder and admiration. Let's look to him now in prayer. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word and how it prepares us and, and challenges us. We pray for our nation. We pray for our world. We pray for your mercy upon us. If we're completely honest, none of us wants to live through Exodus chapter 1. But if we have to, we know where our deliverance will come from. Strip us of our complacency. Help us to keep our eyes on our true home. Lead us in mission and use us for your glory. Most of all, Father, help us to find our strength in the fear of the Lord. Help us to honor you every time we're forced to choose sides. 
and may our lives reflect your goodness. For we ask you in Jesus' name.